This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here in our various remote locations with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Um, When we recorded last week, we had kind of scrapped what we were planning to talk about to talk about the cancellation of South by Southwest and what, um, as of our recording last Tuesday, seemed to be a quickly escalating uh, situation around uh, COVID-19 in the United States. I haven't gone back and listened to it. I don't think any of us truly expected to be where we are now. Um, The way that this story has moved so quickly is kind of the defining aspect of it. Like things change on the hour, by the minute, you kind of can't put down your phone in case some other A-list celebrity gets diagnosed with it. Um, So we're here to talk about, again, the entire world being reshaped as it responds to coronavirus. We do have an interview that we're going to share at the end of the episode. Uh, Richard talked to Zoe Kazan, the star of The Plot Against America, which is one of many great TV shows that are out there right now for everyone to watch as they can't leave their house. And um, Richard, you guys talked actually in person, probably the last in-person interview we'll have on the show for a while. So um, it's going to be a historical relic. Yeah, the last interview ever. You know, I'm I'm surprised that we're, <laughs> we were so confused last week, given that we've had such clear, consistent messaging from the the powers that be in Washington <laughs> throughout this whole thing. I mean, we should have known exactly what to do and to say last <sighs> week, but oh well. Yeah, we, we should have known ex- exactly how the movie theaters were going to close. Um, so we'll talk about the plot against America, um, but we really, we should just talk about coronavirus. Um, I feel like this might happen for the next few weeks. And Mike, I want to hear from you first because you weren't on last week's show because you were on vacation. Um, it was kind of like this funny thing where like, oh, Mike's off in the mountain skiing before the whole world shuts down. And then it kind and it became real. So uh, how does it feel to come back to all of this? Um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it is kind of disorienting. I mean, I will say that I was um, because of some people I follow on Twitter who are sort of like weird alternative economists. I was actually starting to get a really bad sinking feeling about things in late February to the point where I was not even sure that we should go on our skiing trip. And um, I don't know that in retrospect we should have since apparently Colorado has turned into one of the hotspots. And we, you know, saw an article after we came back saying, if you've been skiing in Colorado, you should isolate and stay away from everybody. And it was certainly happening there. You know, we were we were all crammed into a little Airbnb condo. And watching, you know, the Colorado governor on TV declare a state of emergency and hearing that the schools were closing because a parent had um, had the virus. So 
you know, I don't. There, that's what's crazy about this is there is nowhere in the United States uh, to hide at this point, and there, you know, we still are so far behind the curveball that the the eight ball rather that nobody knows um, exactly what's happening. So, uh, so it's not surprising that Hollywood is in the same boat as everybody else. Everybody's got to just kind of like react as cautiously as possible, retract from public life. And hope that that has that helps to prevent this thing from just becoming an absolute disaster, um, you know. And and it's probably still going to be pretty bad. So uh, yeah. So anyway, I'm just glad that I, I'm sorry I missed it. You know, I I was once on vacation during Hurricane Katrina. Um, you know, I just uh, everybody just be careful anytime I'm I'm on vacation. Things get really <laughs> ugly. Mike. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you've talked, told the story then is that like you were on vacation, but the the world was so different then that like five days later you had to start working on it. Not like the situation now where, you know, we're trying to follow every single beat of the story as it happens. Yeah, it, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. So it, the, the last half of the vacation became a working uh, remotely situation somewhat because just, you know, this is just un, it, not only journalistically, but just as a manager, you really had to be thinking carefully about everybody's well-being and safety and making sure the right decisions are being made. So anyway, I'm glad that so far everybody in our team is safe and, uh, you know, we'll just see what happens next. Yeah, I mean, the like the news about shutdowns is really what isn't shut down versus what has. It kind of It's impossible to run through the whole thing. I think as we record this, um, Regal and AMC have both shut down all their theaters. Is that right? Like the um, the biggest national chains. Um, is there anything for you guys that feels the most jarring of a shift Hollywood wise for a movie or for TV shows or anything that like makes makes the gravity of the situation really stand out for you? Well, I was, you know, I was watching some YouTube videos. Our sister publication, Bon Appetit, puts out great videos, and they just had a new mm-hmm. one out that they were, you know, in the video, they're referring to the fact that it's January. And I was like, okay, so that means that, like, they film maybe two months out, so we'll have those videos until mid-May, you know-ish, um, before they're kind of out of content. And then I started thinking about, you know, with the with all these shows and movies shutting down production, that, like, we're, we're running into, into a situation where right now there's plenty of stuff coming out, there's plenty of stuff in the can. You know, um, certain studios are putting things on demand that would have normally been in theaters. But like in a few months time, if we're still all in this situation, it's going to be like there's going to be that much, you know, uh, fewer um, new things, which, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that big of a deal, obviously. But it's an interesting way to think about the long tail of this thing. And we don't know how long we have no idea. The really jarring thing to me was um, was Universal saying they're just going to skip theatrical releases. And I mean, it's rational. It's the only thing you can really do under this circumstance. But it feels like as somebody on our morning call today was was talking about a different industry, but saying this is like an asteroid hitting the dinosaurs. And it really does kind of feel that way with the, the theatrical world. And, you know, it doesn't doesn't take you very far from saying, oh, well, you know, even the big studios are skipping theatrical releases to sort of being like, well, what's the difference between the Oscars and the Emmys then? If everything's just content that goes to your streaming service, you know, like uh, it's all one thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me the difference, you know, Universal is is putting some of its, the, its or all of its theatrical releases digitally uh as soon as this Friday, I think, uh, is what they said. But I thought that it was interesting that A24 is like, we are not doing that emphatically. And so like that almost seems to me to be maybe an indication of the future of theatrical releases where you have these like boutique 
sort of like, um, you know, cinephile, uh, you know, friendly uh, distributors or, or studios having theatrical releases, but will, you know, the more mainstream stuff go there. Not that Universal, I mean, Universal is talking about putting Emma online, which I'm per- personally like really excited for, but I don't know if uh, everyone across the country is, but um, my Jane Austen fans might be might be excited to have something to watch uh during this shelter in place is what we're calling it here in in uh, the bay area so but 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 just to be clear if it become if theatrical becomes a boutique thing um yeah. that's fine and nice but that is the destruction of of basically an industry I'm sorry. right that that I, I, that's I, I like didn't mean going to be from I, yeah that that's going from like seventies uh, record um, business to yeah. the two thousand tens vinyl business, which is not much of a business. I didn't mean to be glib about it. I just meant that to like. No, yes, I'm not and, accusing you of that. Just yeah. Yeah, I just I just meant to yes and this this conversation we're having, which is like if uh you know if we all become quite accustomed to new releases streaming at home will people ever go back to the theaters that's what you know distributors and theater owners have been talking about for a couple weeks now and uh so you know i i was just saying like uh, that it seems to me that there might be differing attitudes towards that uh depending on whether or not the bottom line is is all you care about um and i i'm certainly not rooting for the demise of the theatrical experience or all the people who are employed by the theaters um i i love going to the movie theater so i'm not i'm not at all like you know trying to trying to be flippant about that um i just think it's interesting the different reactions that we've seen from uh different studios and distributors I think one potential saving grace there for the for the um, exhibitors could be that once this is I don't know over or done for the season or however whatever reality we're looking at um, in however many months time is that in, I would think that so many people will be so excited to get out of their houses and like you know do something different that they'll like flood into theaters whatever's open and maybe I don't know just instantly be triggered back into like that habit that might be overly optimistic but like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think last week we were having a meeting and our colleague Anthony Bresencan was saying, you know, I think this is, this is, this is like going to change the whole fabric of the industry. And I like was like, oh, I don't know about that. But with each passing day or half a day or hour, it feels like, yeah, it's definitely like there's some enormous sea change happening. Um, but in what, what that looks like in six months, I have no idea. Somebody said uh, on Twitter, it's time to bring back drive-ins, which is not the worst idea, actually, because you're pretty, you can get your little, uh, you know, self um, isolated group into a car. And, uh, you know, that, that seems safe enough. The thing that seems like it could save movie going and maybe not save it forever, but like I, I like what you're saying, Richard, about people wanting to get out of the house and go see a movie again. But it it feels like you need something special to do that. You need a Star Wars, you need a Avengers End Game, like some kind of event tent pole, because the specialness of movies of making you want to leave the house, like I think it's just going to be a long time before you stop doing a risk assessment of being like, is it worth me going out if I could catch this virus? And you know, looking at the release schedule, like maybe Wonder Woman, if like that's early June, if we're kind of sorted back to normal by then like I don't know how Top Gun Maverick fares in that like even in the heights which we're all excited about like I worry about the power of what's coming to be what draws people out when there's not like a mega event tent pole which we had so many of last year and if it's an industry that literally only those tent poles are what get anyone to go to the theaters it's hard to see how it survives tough guys I mean, so we talked about the TV industry side of it, too. Um, Yesterday, Fargo, season four, season three? The new season of Fargo. Four. Um, Season four. 
postponed its air date because it had to stop production. Um, you know, we keep saying we're going to start talking about Emmy season shows because it is the season for that. But then there keeps being crazy news to discuss. Um, but it, that that feels like it's by far not going to be the only one. Um, you know, what what disruption have you guys noticed on the TV side of it so far? Well, nothing yet, because like so much stuff is, you know, kind of already, you know, ready to go. Um, I think it's going to be that for TV, it's going to be weird because, you know, in six months, we're not going to have anything. You know, um, there's not yeah. there's going to be very little new because all production is has been stopped or is going to be stopped probably soon. Um, and then, you know, then we're in a weird landscape. So I would say if we want to if we want to go back to our original mission on this on this show and say, yeah, for in terms of Emmys, like everything that's going to be Emmys eligible this year, I would with with some minor exceptions, obviously, like Fargo and, the, you know, stuff that was just about to, you know, finish to get over the line. I feel like there's a lot of stuff already in place for, for this year. But uh, so like we probably won't notice much of a change there it's just in in the longer term i mean it's kind of like i think we we had something uh, about this on the site it's you know the the comp you know in a much less serious you know global way is the writer's strike um where there yeah. was this weird gap in 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 programming um but i think back then we were more accustomed to a regular tv season where now we we're, we're just used to having something new or some things plural new all the time and i think that's pace is going to have to slow for a little bit um in the future uh, certainly in terms of production, but I do know a lot of writers' rooms are still, they're just doing Zoom meetings, basically. Um, so, you know, like, the, the writing is still happening, but yeah, it's the it's the active production, it's the active sets that are, that are shut down. So I will be curious to see how much of a valley we see in content, actually, um, or maybe it'll feel like a bit of a, you know, a bit of a catch up that we can all play. Um, I think the biggest news TV wise in terms of productions being shut down is uh, Amazon's Lord of the Rings shut down in New Zealand because New Zealand has instituted a very strict like um, no one in, no one out uh, policy in terms of containing the virus. Uh, and so that made production prohibitive. I mean, I, I think shutting down production is a good idea anyway, but certainly, you know, when your headquarters are in uh, the United States and your crew is in New Zealand, the, you know, not being able to come in and out um, is, is yeah, is a no-go. Is that, so, is, Joanna, is that show cursed? Serious, maybe not, uh, somewhat serious, <laughs> serious question. Uh, I mean, I don't know what to say about that, but I... I it seems like they have had n- numerous hiccups on their way. I mean, the same with Avatar. You know, the Avatar uh, production has been shut down, too. Like, there seem to be... Or, like, New Mutants getting delayed. There seem to be all these, like, perennially cursed projects that, like, the coronavirus is not helping. Part of that, not to sound, like, too cynical or whatever, but part of that is, like, some of these productions that I've heard that, have, you know, because production is being halted all across the television and film industry all around the world. And some of the productions that I've heard being halted are productions that I know were experiencing some difficulties already. Um, and I'm not just talking about Lord of the Rings. And this is almost like the the Corona pause is almost like a, a chance for some of these people to sort of maybe fix some issues that they were having, like have some space to fix those issues and not rush towards the deadline. So, um, you know, if there's a silver lining at all in this, which, you know, it's hard to find often when tons of people are out of work. um, It's maybe that, you know, in a calmer, in a calmer space, maybe some of these stories that they're having trouble telling, um, they could figure out a better way to tell them. I like the idea of finding a silver lining that will get better art as a result of all of this. <laughs> Maybe. Somehow. 
I think the thing that I worry about is that we're all going to get so used to watching like live stream YouTube videos and Instagram lives and all this stuff that like the appetite might go away for like big, expensive, nice stuff. Like, I, I, you know, you think about the Great Depression where like everyone wanted escapism and they wanted to go flock to movie palaces and make maybe the reverse will happen. But I, you know, you start thinking about it on a long enough view and like our entire taste in entertainment could totally change by the time this is over. Are you saying it's Quibi's time to shine? <laughs> is Quibi still happening? Well, it, it, it is launching, I was thinking right? About, I, I was thinking about Quibi, and it's like the, the stuff that Quibi is made for doesn't... I mean, it's made for, like, subway commutes and quick things as we are on our, like, on-the-go lifestyle. And it's like, no one's on the go right now. Like, like I mean, some people obviously are people who are essential workers and, and you know, so, you know, like, I, I don't know, but... Um, who probably don't have yeah, time to yeah, watch Quib- Quibi anyway. Yeah, Quibi feels like this weird... I don't know, like thing from another era already. Yeah, no, there's so many things that feel like they're just these like holdovers from uh, a separate time. Um, yeah. And I, I will say, though, in, in terms of your concern about, you know, our taste changing, Katie, and, and I'm just one person, but as someone who has reported a lot on, on YouTube content and, and and social media stardom and, and all that stuff, um, you get pretty sick of it pretty fast <laughs> uh, if you are consuming too much of it. Um, so And so you want to retreat to something a little bit more formalized. I mean, obviously, that's true for people maybe my age and older but you know young people probably are already on that train tiktok is gonna keep them entertained um throughout however long this social distancing is in place well i i'm not a um a demographic that anyone looks to for trends but um <laughs> so far through this thing um basically every night uh elise and i are just watching like two plus hours of the outsider on hbo and then maybe a chaser of Curb Your Enthusiasm just to, like, you know, lighten the mood up a little bit. And by the way, I cannot wait for Larry David to take on this whole germaphobe. I mean, he's already a germaphobe, so he, he will do great comedy around this. But um, but I, I do feel like it, one, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting is if the if the content fire hose slows down, it does sort of prompt you to um, – to look and catch up, as I think Joanna said earlier, like, like, so what are the things that I haven't had a chance to watch now that we all have some time? You know, I, I so far, thankfully, don't have time during the day because I'm working. But in the evenings, you know, there's nothing else to do but sort of get lost in a world. So I, I think that that high quality stuff is actually really helpful and important right now in terms of just, you know, and, and getting lost in another world. We also watched uh, Contagion. The other night, which I don't know if I can recommend, but has anyone yeah, else no thing, given no into thing. that? I, I know it's, I mean, it's at like the top of my Apple TV home screen when I log in because people are renting it on iTunes. And I, every time I'm just like, nope, moving on. Yeah, I, I watched it. And for the first 20 minutes, I was like, oh, this is kind of comforting because it feels vaguely similar to, to the news I'm reading now. And then by the end, I was like, that was a mistake. I should not, I should not have done yeah. that. <laughs> um, but, but it's, it's it funny. It gets pretty you know, dark. My, you know, talking, Mike, about about like, you know, having to spend hours immersed in a world like someone on Twitter asked me like for recommend me and a couple other critics for like movie recommendations. And I was like, honestly, it's hard to recommend movies because those are over in two hours. And I know you have so much time to kill. So it's easier for me to recommend a 10 hour series and just kind of be like that'll that, that'll take you to for a couple nights, maybe, you know, um. So I feel like long form is is really going to benefit from this. Movies, of course, will too. But um, if we're really thinking about like long hauls, like, you know, night after night after night, um, that's, you know, a, another instance of, of you know, um, episodic storytelling um, kind of t- assuming primacy. Yeah, well, and the, if the theory is that this strange ordeal 
that we don't know how long it's going to last, but could last like quite a long time. If the theory is that it could change our behaviors in ways that sort of kill off things that were already kind of dying and, and maybe give power to things that were on the rise, I could definitely see the 10-hour series coming out much stronger and the movie much less strong because it lends itself so much to that sort of home viewing, getting lost in something versus going out to a theater. And, you know, there's an obvious reason why they don't show 10-hour things in a theater. Nobody wants to be there for that long or come back that many times. Yeah, my question, my big question right now uh, is, is now the time for me to finally watch The Sopranos? Is this Ooh. when I do it? Ah. <laughs> yeah, it's a great time for it. I mean, it's, there's, my, there's, it's, it's always a good time. It's my deepest pop cultural shame. So, you know. Is a dark series the thing that you can get into, though? Mm. Like, I mean, Mike, you've been watching The Outsider, so maybe the answer is yes. And, and personally, I have watched nothing but Frozen 1 and 2. Um, and I'm very jealous of all of you who don't have kids at home who uh, take all of the screen time. Um, so I hope that at some point I can get sane enough to watch something. But I do I do wonder if I'm going to want to watch. Like, when I was on maternity leave and I couldn't handle anything dark, I watched all of Parenthood on Joanna's recommendation. And, you know, I feel like uh, rewatching all of Cheers might become a really popular move to uh, look back to a time when people gathered in public places and touched each other. Yeah, I mean, that's why I said the outsider curb your enthusiasm mix is is <laughs> kind of helpful. You know, you need a little Ted Danson in your life uh, to, to yeah. leaven the insanity. <laughs> I know a lot of people who have been re-watching uh, Schitt's Creek. It seems to be one of the most popular uh, yeah, com- yeah. comfort watches right now. Yeah, I have yep. popped into that one uh, when I do have a spare minute or two. And I, I will say, like, I mean, anyone who needs recommendations of kids programming on Netflix and Disney Plus, et cetera, I, uh, I'm all over it. And Disney Plus did uh, pull the genius move of sitting at a press release announcing that they were putting Frozen 2 on the platform uh, early. And um, we were among the millions of people who I'm sure took advantage. So it's even even without doing something as drastic as what Universal did and taking theatrical releases on there, um, there's a lot of diff- other ways that studios are are kind of stepping up to the moment. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, let's pivot to two other currently airing dark HBO dramas that you can watch as part of your quarantine. Um, Richard and Joanna, you guys have kicked off the latest season of uh, Still Watching, which is all about Westworld, um, which I think is one of the more fun shows that you guys cover because it's so dense. It's got so much to pick apart. Um, And the first episode aired on Sunday night. How's it going so far? Yeah, I guess I'll just say that, you know, if you haven't watched Westworld and you want to catch up 
to seasons one and two. Like, now, what are you waiting for? Now's the time. And Westworld takes place in a near future. I think it's, they said it's 2058, I believe, or 2059. Um, and I don't know if you know this about Westworld, Katie, but they've cured all diseases in, in this future timeline. I didn't know that. Am I supposed to know yeah. that from watching the show? Yeah, they say, I mean, they haven't said it since season one, pretty much, but maybe they want you to forget that. But they've cured diseases. They haven't cured death, but they've cured diseases. So they definitely cured corona by 2059 in Westworld. Great. So there Only is no 39 corona. years to go. Yeah, we got this. We got this. Shelter in place. Um, Richard, what do you, uh, I know you reviewed the new season of Westworld and weren't like necessarily crazy about the, um, the way it's kind of re- hit the reset button. Uh, we, we have all seen four episodes because they gave out screeners, but we, we can only, we can just talk about the first one. Um, how is it, how did that first episode hit you? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice to be back in the show's world, even though, you know, the show has now shifted from outside of the park and into quote unquote reality. Um, but you know, the performances are, are, are so solid on that show. And I just, I like the... I like the tone of it. I think my, my issue thus far with the season is just that, like, I miss kind of the more, like, complex, really, you know, opaque mystery of season two, which a lot of people didn't like. You know, I, I, I filed this review basically saying that it was kind of dumbed down and, and simplified and, and tweeted it out thinking people would agree with me. But all these people responded responded to me being like, well, isn't that a good thing, though? Because I couldn't follow season two. So, um I think, I think, you know, I think your mileage may vary depending, but um, it is just fun to be like, you know, have something like that really looks expensive and is immersive and, um, you know, really well acted and intricate. And I'm just, you know, I'm excited to have that back. It feels, it feels like good, good timing, um, even if it does make you think a bit, um, you know, darkly about mortality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was something that, like, when I was watching uh, the episodes I do have of Westworld, like, thinking about, like, how people are terrible to each other and mortality and the nature of life. And I was just like, I don't know, man. I, I might need, like, Shit's Creek or something a little bit cuddlier to go along with all of this. And, and I'm curious about how the response to the season of Westworld continues as the news around us gets um, more and more intense by the hour. How about the plot against America? Speaking of human cruelty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, How about a little Philip had, Roth for you? Yeah, I just had to write a review of that, a positive review, trying to tell people to watch the show despite the fact that it really like is a, a is a bit grim. I mean, so you know, it's based on the Philip Roth novel from two thousand four, so published during the Bush years. Seemed kind of weirdly prescient about um, the Trump years, while also looking back to the past. It, it imagines you know, oh, 1940s, uh, 1940 America, where uh, FDR loses the presidential election to Charles Lindbergh, who you know was uh, an anti Semite and um, sympathetic to the Nazi Party, and so it just imagines like what the ripple effects immediately of that would be in you know from the lens of this one Jewish family in Newark, New Jersey. And it just, you know, it, it is from David Simon and Ed Burns, who were, you know, collaborated on The Wire together. Um, so it has a real sense of kind of, you know, it's a melodrama in a way, but it has a sense of realism to it, too. And it's, you know, it's it's very grounded in its time and its place in its imagined alternate kind of history. And yet obviously has relevance to things happening in America since, especially since 2016, and uh, just enough to make it feel like it has a peg, like it's it's you know that it, it has a it, it belongs in this time, but not so much that you feel like you're watching you know the news. It it's 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 enough of a contained story that um, I think it's um, you know it, you're kind of it, it protects itself from feeling too on the nose, I guess. Um, and I, I I really liked it. 
I don't know how recently you watched it. I um, watched the second episode two nights ago, maybe, and just thought it was really interesting to watch now of, you know, the first two episodes, at least, are kind of these this family in Newark kind of senses what's coming. They they don't like Lindbergh. Uh, they don't think he's going to get elected. Uh, the second episode ends with him being elected in a, um, you know, sh- election night shock that I think is very deliberately reminiscent of recent events for us. And yeah, just watching these people like sense the future coming but not be able to see it really felt striking after the last two weeks we've had of kind of thinking we knew what was coming and then actually finding it. Um, But like you said, Richard, it doesn't feel probably not like contagion. It doesn't feel like so direct that it's a little bit of an ability to escape and, you know, maybe look at a version of history that could have been worse. So, uh, you know, at least in real life, it didn't turn out that way. (laughs) What's what's interesting to me watching, I've only watched the first episode, but what was interesting to me um, was there was so much opportunity for the show to hit us over the head with the Trump parallels. And I don't think it did, but only because it just doesn't have to. Do you know what I mean? It's just there in the text, in the existent Philip Roth text. And so I just didn't feel like it was winking at me as the parallels were very strikingly there. And something that I thought was really interesting that I found out after the fact is that you hear this, you hear this radio speech that Lindbergh is giving where he's like othering the Jewish people and British people and Anglophiles, I suppose. And um, apparently that was, I mean, not apparently, that was a real speech that Lindbergh gave. And then they trans, they cut it down, but they transcribed it basically word for word. And, uh, and that's astonishing to me. Um, it shouldn't be, uh, you know, you feel naive uh, often when you watch stories like this. But anyway, it was, uh, I think it's really effective. Uh, yeah, and the other thing about the show that is, um, you know, would be interesting, I think, certainly to listeners of regular listeners of this podcast is is the cast. You know, you have John Turturro, who's done such great work with HBO miniseries in the past with um, The Night Of. Um, you have Zoe Kazan, who I'm going to speak to for this, uh, you know, for today's interview, um, who's wonderful, especially in, a, in the final episode. Um, Morgan Spector, an actor who's been doing theater and television for a long time and now has this kind of great lead role, you know, as the patriarch of the Levin and family yeah and then you have Winona Ryder yeah he's really good and then Winona Ryder you know kind of on loan from from (laughs) Stranger Things um (laughs) and getting to do something different you know playing a very different character than who she plays on Stranger Things and um it's just a really nice reminder of her range and and so you know the the Winona the free Winona crowd uh should uh at least at least uh check out the first episode and and see their girl in action but again yes Dobie Kazan who we're gonna uh, I'm gonna speak to uh coming up is um is excellent in the series and she had a lot of you know powerful things to say about it it was a really meaningful experience for her and i think the rest of the crew and the cast um which is something i touched on my review is that like it feels like this big collective kind of you know effort almost like a sort of you know brechtian sort of theater troupe trying to just you know tell this urgent sort of political story um which is a you know at least that you know there's dark stuff in the show but that energy feels good yeah, the idea that like even in the darkest of times, uh, whether it is in World War II or now, that like people can kind of come together for the sake of something kind of beautiful and beyond us. Um, maybe that's another argument for, you know, big expensive art is that you, you're kind of astonished at what people can pull off when they put all those resources into it. Um, all right. Well, Richard, let's listen to your conversation with Zoe Kazan. Well, I have the distinct pleasure of being sat across the studio table right now from one of the incredible stars of the plot against America, Zoe Kazan. 
Thanks for being here. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I feel like we've been kind of ships in the night, like crossing paths on Twitter and maybe at various events at film festivals and stuff. So it's nice to finally be able to sit down and, and actually ch- chat. And you. I have um, I have such a love-hate relationship with Twitter, as does, I think, every person mm-hmm. on it. Um, every it's... sane, healthy person. Anyway. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Every non-bot. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, getting to feel like I know other people and, you know, other film lovers is, I I feel like a big boon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of an interesting community on like the subset of film Twitter that's like you and Melanie Linsky and like Jamie Bell, like Max Miguel maybe filmmakers, actors who genuinely I think are like want to know what the latest A24 news is or Mm. whatever IndieWire has posted like um, (laughs) which I kind of like because it's like oh right you guys are making like care about this stuff too it's not just a one-sided conversation I also I put I put myself on like a film news diet a Mm -hmm. few years ago where or I guess like eight years ago now where I just said like okay this is not worth the grief that it brings into my life I'm not gonna like read um you know the traits anymore yeah um so i feel like twitter is a little bit like cheating for me like i like i get to see a couple headlines right and... right but you're not like doing the deep dive into deadline and you know, mm-hmm. yeah yeah um did you grow up that way like paying really close attention to the industry no um not really although you know like my parents are both screenwriters so we got like variety and right. you know every week or whatever um and you know, I, rem- I mean, this is so fucked up, but I remember being like a little kid and when my parents would have a movie coming out, I remember like checking the box office to know like wow. what their mood would be. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, that's one of the that's like one of the only spots where I look back and I'm like, OK, that, I guess that's kind of a weird thing to for a child to do. Um. But they tried to really shelter us from caring or knowing very much about their world. Right. Yeah. And so when when you entered it as a professional yourself, did, did you feel like you still had a lot to learn or you had you hadn't sort of osmosed their industry knowledge, I guess? Um, I think it's like in weird pockets, just like anything else about adulthood. Yeah. Like, you know, the things that like looking back, I'm like, OK, I didn't know how to do my laundry, but I did know how to like brown garlic, you know, like <laughs> um, like I, I feel like I understood how to like the basics of how one conducted oneself on a film set. And I probably knew a lot more about like script structure than the average person or the average 18 year old. But uh, I knew very little about what it would feel like to be a working actor and um, even less about like, I don't know, the actual like mechanics of the business. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, you're you're some years into a a really interesting career and I'm, I'm how are you finding things right now? I mean, is, is is because of the TV boom, is there just that much more work out there or is it harder to find worthy projects? Well, I think that there's a kind of sea change that happens. And I I don't mean this as a kind of like, oh, woe is we <laughs> statement. But um, there is a sea change that happens, I think, particularly for women moving from their 20s until their, into their 30s. And I, I think it has to do with like the kinds of stories we like to tell as a culture, which I think we like to tell coming of age stories, Mm -hmm. you know, especially for young women. And also, you know, you just have to look at the stats of like how old Tom Cruise's leading ladies are to understand that like we like to see younger faces on screen as love objects too. And so I felt it not just in my own career, but you know, you're sort of almost like being a swimmer or something. You're like watching the other lanes to understand what the race is like or something like Mm -hmm. I have a lot of 
female friends and you're racing yourself, you're racing your own clock, but you're keeping your eye on the other lanes. And and um, my female friends who are actors, I think all saw a change in their career around that point where like you stopped getting 12 auditions a week and you had like three auditions a month instead. And it's not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I've found the roles to be much more interesting in my 30s than they were in my 20s, especially on film. And, you know, I mean, uh, not on stage, I mean. But uh, there was a difference. And I guess it also coincided with a sort of change in my life in the last, you know, five years or so, where I've really tried to concentrate on um, making my life happy rather than just always trying to be working. And that's meant that I've tried to work less often but on things that meant more to me and sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't uh, you know the project we're here to talk about plot against america was exceptionally meaningful to me and then and you know you don't i don't know I, at this point in my career i've been doing this for almost 15 years and i don't expect those meaningful things to come around as often as i think i used to expect them to when i was like a little more idealistic <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think for me, like when I started writing professionally, it was like, oh my god, like this, like every day is gonna be this like creative <laughs> triumph. And then you know, twelve years in, I'm like, yeah, like once in a while, sure, something feels really important. But that's like, exactly you know, right. And then you're like, oh, that's a pretty good ratio. Like it's if, more than a lot of people have. Yeah, for sure. yeah, like if something meaningful comes along for me every three to five years, that's actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And then sometimes it can just be work, you know. And I think that's, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I've read a couple, or, or at least I. I saw a transcript of you talking at um, TCAs in California, and it does seem like, as you just said, that this particular project, Plot Against America, is one of those special ones. And um, I'm just curious, like, what your kind of origin story is with it. Did you know the novel? I didn't. I had never read any Philip Roth, as far as I can remember. Like, maybe I read Goodbye Columbus in middle school, but who can count that? (laughs) Um, I don't mean the book. I mean middle school. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I had worked with David Simon on the deuce, sure. um, which I had auditioned for, for a small role, mostly because I just wanted him to think of me in the pool of actors that he sort of draws from. Um, and I loved working on that, but it was very much like something that I would step in and out of, you know, put on my big blonde wig and go to work for a day or two. And then, um, on the l- second to last season of The Deuce, I worked one day of work very pregnant, and David sort of made some crack about, oh, like, um, we're going to put you to work next fall or next winter, so, you know, be ready. We'll have we'll make sure that you have your child care taken care of or something. And then that fall, when my baby was a couple months old, he DM'd me on Twitter. <laughs> so, let's see, Twitter. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> it's like it's one of these things where you're like, I was almost out, and they dragged me back in. Like, yeah. you know, I, I like think about quitting, and then I'm like, okay, but I have gotten a couple jobs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he DM'd me and was like, um, we're going to offer you this thing, read the book, and, you know, your daughter can direct second unit if she wants or something. Um, uh, just saying, like, they'd be a baby-friendly set, which they were. Um, I'd never read the book. I read it. I was sort of bowled over by it. Uh, I mean, the parallels are so extraordinary to what's happening right now in our political moment that I actually thought, oh, they're going to beat us up for some of this language, like the um, 
sort of Lindbergh supporters in the novel who are, you know, um, at the forefront of this growing fascist movement are called America Firsters. That's something Breitbart has already picked up on. But it was in Roth's novel, and it's and it's in Roth's novel because it's historically correct. Um, uh, in fact, the where they got that terminology today. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He wrote the novel in 2004. I can't imagine that he didn't write it at least in response to what was happening in the world around him at that time. But it feels like not just prescient. It feels like of the moment yeah. when you read it. And I then went, I, I mean, I agreed immediately. And then sort of in the absence of having scripts right away, I went on a little like dive into Roth's world, which was such a joy. And like one of the reasons to do this job really for me at least is getting to sort of fall into, fall in love with something new um, and like expand my brain and you know, the little stack of Roth by my bed is so like annotated and dog-eared now. I feel really lucky from a brain perspective too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, watching it, um, I'm not terribly familiar with Roth either, but something I was struck by in the, in the miniseries, which I sort of devoured in, in one sitting. Um, That's a lot to take in one sitting. I, I was a little crazy. I mean, I, I think I was like, like I like texted my boyfriend and it was like something completely incoherent. And I like, he was like, what have you been doing all day? Um, I mean, I watched two, I watched it in three sections of two and was like, I don't think I can do more than two episodes of this at a time. It's very, it's not just heavy. It's like, it's very intimate. I mean, that's something that I love about David Simon's, you know, sort of worlds is that, you know, people call them Dickensian. Um, they're just, they're so well populated and specifically populated, you know, and this is about a story about this family. I mean, and it's about other things too. And yet such huge things loom over them that they kind of come in contact with. So it's a hard sit, but it's a really like nourishing one at the same time. Did it feel that way making it? Like what was the kind of vibe like when you're doing this very like relevant scary stuff Ooh, I mean this one was a, a really uh, meaningful one for me in a lot of ways um, it was my first job back after having my child mm-hmm. which felt like a really big deal I mean something happens to you when you have a baby or at least it happened to me where I felt like the molecules of my body like disassembled and then had to reassemble in a kind of Star Trekian way sure. over in a new corner. And like what I felt was like that the molecules of my body, like six months out, which is when I started this project, were like halfway back to being reassembled. But there were still like ions floating in the air around me that hadn't found their place yet. And it's a scary place to be going to work as an actor from because you're using yourself and your body as your material you know as as raw material in a lot of ways and um like my early costume fittings with our costume designer Jeriana San Juan who had also whose baby is my baby's age were so complicated not because my body looked so incredibly different than it had before but because I felt so different about my body and myself and um I've really relied on costume fittings in the past to help me sort of winnow down towards the character like cut the fat away from the bone and figure out where this person lies and little things like if the buttons are in the back of the shirt or the front of the shirt and the way a collar sits on my neck like those things have a big impact on 
how I understand the character and the person I see in the mirror is like the first time I meet the character in a way. And I, all I saw was this like, and the clothes of the period don't help really. All I saw was this kind of like archetypal person. Like I saw like um, Teresa Wright out of Best Years of Our Lives Mm -hmm. or something. Like I was like, I just look like an archetypal woman. Like I, the hair and the clothes and like, who is this person besides being a mother, which is also the question that I was asking myself at the time. Like I had felt sort of subsumed by motherhood and care for my child. And and then also Roth's perspective of his mother sort of didn't in a way help or compounded that because when you read not just Plot Against America, but also The Facts and Patrimony, his other two like more autobiographical works, you can see that he's, at least from my perspective, it feels like he never really came to an adult understanding of his mother. She died when he was in his 50s, I think. And the way he looks at his father is just so much more complicated and so much more like a man looking at another man. In fact, there's a part of patrimony where he's looking at his father's penis while he's helping bathe him in the bath when he's very old. And he he sort of talks about how his father's penis still looks like the penis of a virile person and how he hopes that it gave his mother pleasure. And like, in a way, that's the most um, like adults inner life that he imbues to his mother is in that moment and otherwise it's very much about him like sort of snuggling into her body and how uh, perfect she kept their home and how how well she cared for everyone and so I was having to do a lot of reading between the lines to find like where this adult woman's life inner life actually lay so I had to get over this kind of hurdle both internally and inherent in the material to sort of finding Bess and figuring her out and then once I got into the actual work of it and I found, you know, they always say for actors, like if you're lost, look to the other actors, like don't look inside yourself. And I really feel like I found Bess in her care for her family and found a way to make her perspective, which is an extremely domestic perspective, feel so big and important to me. I came to really love those boys, Eji and Caleb, um, who play Philip and Sandy and and love Morgan who plays my husband and who plays Herman Levin um, and love our home like we had this little sort of sound stage home built for us in Queens and the exteriors we shot um, not far from where Philip Roth grew up in New Jersey and um, once that world and that home and like my apron and my kitchen and the way that I wanted my table and once those things became clear to me then the scope of it opened up for me. And um, we were in the first stages of the Democratic primary during the time, I think the first debate happened while we were filming and Morgan, who plays my husband, is um, very sort of activated politically and he and I had a lot of really long, interesting conversations on set and then you're working on this material that feels so apropos and so interesting and it was like a complete experience for me like a top to bottom head to toe like transformative important wonderful experience and I I hope that when you watch it you see a lot of the love that was in it because that's really the most important thing it's like it's really about this ordinary family Mm -hmm. and sort of how the bonds of love are tested and stretched and consolidated 
in order to survive this terrible moment in history that they're going through. Yeah, I mean, it feels incredibly textured. And like I so I think that what you're talking about, at least in my experience, carries through in the viewing experience, which makes it all the scarier because it's that much more immersive and, and believable. Um, even though we know that that's not what happened, it's like, but did, I mean, it, it still feels like it could, even though it's the past, which is kind of a it's funny thing. It's not quite like um, science fiction, right? No, it's like historical no. fiction. Yeah. Like, I keep thinking, like, it's not, could this happen here, but um, how could this happen here? Right, exactly. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Um, I'm curious, you know, with uh, the, the climate that we're in and have been in, do you feel at all a mandate to do specifically political work at this point? Or is it just like, if that's what the project presents, okay, but it's not something you're like actively seeking out? I don't think that there is that much out there. Well, first of all, let me just say, <laughs> like when people like Melanie Linsky, who's a friend of mine, mm -hmm. um, or, or other actor friends of mine, like talk about some of the misconceptions about our work. One of the things we talk about is like, I think people might have the sense that we have like a lot of choice on our plate. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's really not like that, even even in the good circumstance of being very lucky and being working actors and people that get put on lists and thought of for things. I don't read that many scripts a year, period, let alone things that I would really think I'd want to do. And also I have a new, because I'm a parent, I have a new set of criteria of, of how I need to think about my priorities. So with that said, I'll just say like, this is the only thing that I've read that's really political with the exception of maybe one other script in the last like five years. Like, I don't think like we're like chock-a-block with material that feels politically relevant right now to me at least it feels extraordinary to be able to put something into the world that speaks to the current moment and that I can feel proud of and feel like represents my viewpoint in a lot of ways that is also not like a polemic it's not like it's not um, a diatribe in any way it's not pointing fingers it's asking questions but I will say that <laughs> I mean, especially in the light of the like climate crisis that we're facing, um, my work in general has to like come to a much higher bar for it to feel meaningful to me. You know, otherwise, yeah. as we talked about earlier, it is just work. You know, yeah. like I still have to, you know, feed my kid and pay my mortgage. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, you know, it feels better when the work feels meaningful because I have this other life as a writer. Sure takes a little bit of pressure for me off of what my work as an actor has to say or do or mean. Um, because even if I'm not showing it to anyone at the end of the day, I can go home and spend an hour on my computer and do some creative work that feels meaningful to me. Even if my day f 
my day is like opening and closing a fridge 20 times on camera. <laughs> That's why I still have a Tumblr. I'm, like, I'm the last person. <laughs> you do? I do. Yeah. What is your Tumblr? Oh, uh, it's just it's just my name at .tumblr.com, but it um, you know, it's like little personal essays about it's so it's so oh my god but, i want to follow your yeah. tumblr <laughs> okay well it's out there great um so this is maybe kind of a trite question um but going on to set having just become a parent you have to work with a lot of kids i'm sure you've worked with kids before did it change how you interacted with these young actors being a parent you know i think it's sort of like the question in a way about like what is it like having a female director versus a male director, which is to say that in a way it's an unfair question or is it, there's no way to answer it fairly because every person is different. Sure. Um, and in that way, like every child is different. Like these two children were such extraordinary um, members of our team and such extraordinary collaborators. And that it sounds like a line. It's not like they're, so amazing like Eji Robertson who plays Philip was nine when we were filming this and was like I mean we would all joke that we're gonna work for Eji someday he's also in Marriage Story he's like blowing up he's he's, he's in an, that amazing he, SNL skit like yeah he's, he's like an amazing child actor and I think an amazing actor and he's got that thing where he just thinks on camera like the way Tom Hanks does or something where you can see inside of his head and he doesn't need to be told how to do those things I, I feel very protective towards him because I want him to have a happy life and sometimes the life of an actor is not mm -hmm. the happiest life but um and then Caleb Malice who plays our older son Sandy it was his really his first job ever and he was cast very late in the process in fact, I think he was cast two days before our table read and walked onto set having never, I think he had done one commercial, having never been on a film set before and learned how to do all of the basic things that you have to know how to do, like how to hit your mark and, um, you know, play to the camera on a close-up versus a wide shot and all of that stuff. And he also, like, rose to the challenge in such a beautiful way and never made us feel like we had to take care of him or baby him or any of the things that sometimes you have to do with child actors. I've worked with wonderful child actors before, but this was really an extraordinary group. And it, you know, maybe I, my feelings were a little more protective than they would have been before. And it certainly was a joy to get to bring my daughter to like our work baseball games and stuff and see her interacting with my play children um that was a kind of surreal and wonderful experience and I cried very hard on my last day of work saying goodbye to my kids um I do feel like in some part of my heart they're my children so it was a much more profound experience um but I don't know whether that has to do with my early motherhood or not um Forgive me, I forget the character's name, but there's also the the boy next, the little boy, Selden. Selden, who's played by Jacob Laval. Yeah, and I think I DM'd you on Twitter and said that the I'm, okay. Spoiler alert for anyone who has not watched the show yet. It's a mild spoiler, but um, that the scenes where you're talking to him on the phone when there's a scene where Selden feels that he is in danger. Yeah, it is one of the most heartbreaking things I have seen on screen in a long time. Um, and it's straight from the book. I mean, it's really, it's just, it, it's such a, it's such a powerful distillation of 
all the fear and horror and, and everything that's been happening to all these characters for the run of the show. What is a, what is a phone scene like that like to film? Because you have to get a lot from not a lot from a kind of static reality. Yeah. So there are there are a few scenes in the series that are straight from the book where the dialogue is basically lifted from the book. There's a scene at the end of episode three where Morgan's character Herman sings in this sort of dinette that we're in in Washington D.C. and that is one of those sort of miraculous things where they pulled it almost directly from the book and getting to explore it and see the way that life lived inside of those lines. Like it really spoke to Roth's skill as a novelist. Um, and, and those are kind of like time travel moments. You feel like you're inside Roth's brain for a minute. There's a scene at the end of episode or in the middle of episode six, where Selden is, feels himself to be in danger and calls for help, um, to New Jersey to where we are. And, um, in the book, it's a long conversation between Bess and Selden, and I really advocated for that scene to be in it. Um, they were the writers were writing as those final episodes as we were shooting the first episodes, and I felt it was a very important part of Bess's journey as a person that she was capable of being a mother surrogate to Selden in those moments and sort of rising to the emergency. Um, because she is a more timid and retiring, I guess, for the lack of a better word, person at the beginning of the series. And that sort of fierceness and strength and, and backbone, I think, come to the fore over the course of the series. And then Tommy Shlami, <laughs> our director for the second half of the series, was like a couple days before was like, um, do you have that really memorized? Because I want to do it in one take. Sorry, in one shot. He meant uh, like he didn't want to have to cut. Right. Um, and he told me ahead of time what he thought the shot would be. And so it's fun because it's a little bit like getting to do a piece of stage work or something. Um, and it's sort of maddening because there's really no one there on the other end of the line. We recorded Jacob's lines at another time um, because who's playing Selden because um, they're child actors and they can only have certain hours. And I asked if he could be there. And when it became clear that he couldn't, I tried to see if I could bring in another actor friend to read lines for me off camera. Um, and then it seemed like that wasn't going to be able to happen. And I ended up <laughs> reading with our second AD, Tina Marie, who um, like hid in the bathroom off, off camera and, um, and, and, like kind of squeaked out in an imitation of Sultan's voice. I like te um, on the day I like tested out like six different people on set. I like went up to like our PAs and were like, can you read this with me? And tried to find the person who I found like um, least uh, intrusive sure. <laughs> to my thought process. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it was a lot of, um, you know, imaginary gunshots off camera and, you know, a lot of imagination but in that way, it felt like doing a play, and, and that felt really good. And once we got the camera, you know, it's a dance between you and the camera, that kind of shot. And so we had to get the camera right, and Stu, our camera op, is very talented and was there for us for the whole thing and was like a huge part of the um, collaborative process. Um, it feels like a like a mountain that you climb between everyone. Like you're all doing it together. And at the end of the day, you don't feel like you're alone, even though I'm alone in the shot. 
Have you seen the finished product? I've watched probably what you've watched. I've watched yeah. like the links. It's they're okay. so a little rough. Those last episodes. Yeah, there were a couple like special effectsy things that were. Yeah, um, I think no, there's some but, sound stuff that yeah. isn't quite there yet. But, well, that yeah. scene. I mean, it just, well, it's kind of a series of scenes. Like really, just kind of I think drive home the whole. And I think you know, thinking about Bess's arc, like and maybe this is corny, but like you know, I think we have this conversation now about oh well, you know she doesn't work and it's like well no I mean there actually is a lot of work it's just unpaid does, labor yeah well she right. does actually go back to work well, in, right. the, yes. yeah. in the series but yes she's doing she's doing a mountain of domestic work yeah I mean a mountain that you're not seeing because you know it's not what you make miniseries you see her scrubbing the floors at one point right. out of anxiety but um, and you see her doing a lot of cooking and sort of I asked like let her hands never be idle you know right yeah um, so when they're as a family listening to the radio or whatever, she's doing mending and, yeah. you know, I think she reads a book at one point, but that's about as idle as you ever see her be. And then they're, they're in that big scene, like you see like that taking charge like that is an absolute developed skill that she has, af- you know, after raising, you know, two kids. And, and um, so I think it's a really nice testament to that character. And I'm, I'm glad it's in there. Um, Thanks. Speaking of working with co-stars. You know, you're working with David Simon, you're working with Tommy Schlamme, you're working on Philip Roth. I mean, these are a lot of icons, but there's another icon that you worked a lot with, which is Winona, Winona Ryder, who plays your sister uh, in the show. Um, were you a kind of Ryder fan growing up like a lot of us our age were? Or Yeah, I mean, she holds a funny place in my particular cosmology because, you know, my mother wrote the 94 adaptation of Little mm-hmm. Women, which was a set that I was on for, you know... At, and my parents didn't like to take us to set that much, but because that was such a child-friendly set, I think we spent a couple of weeks in Vancouver, you know, my sister and I, like, palling around with Kirsten Dunst or whatever, like, going to the science museum, doing things that kids do. And um, I met her then when I was a little girl, and she seemed very glamorous to me and smelled like cigarette smoke, which was exciting. You know, it's very different as an adult. Sure, yeah. Um She's such an incredible actor and such an interesting actor. Like, there's a kind of, like, fragility to her on screen. I mean, she's given, I think, some of the indelible performances of the last 50 years, like, truly. I think, for instance, her um, performance in Beetlejuice is, like, Mm -hmm. transcendent. But adult performances, too. So I was really excited to get to work with her and... I thought it was really interesting casting for that role. It's sort of not exactly what is in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, for one thing, David reversed the sibling order in casting me and Winona in the book. Evelyn is the younger sister and Bess is the older sister. And I thought it was a very productive um, inversion for our adaptation in that it helped me understand why Bess is a little less eager to criticize her sister. We talked a lot about how in a traditional Jewish family, the older sister would have had to be married before the younger sister and how, what a shame or what a sense of shame Bess must have of sort of usurping her sister's place. And it was useful for me to think about that in terms of kind of guilt over her being unmarried at whatever age we're projecting her to be in her early 40s or whatever. And uh, I also felt like it was productive for me to have that glamorous early vision of Winona because I think 
you know, I think you see it in the way that they dress themselves on screen. Um, Winona's character, Evelyn, has a much more sort of glamorous and youthful style and wears a lot of makeup. And I think for Bess, who's less inclined towards that kind of view of herself, that it must have been like having a movie star for an older sister in a way, especially coming from a kind of immigrant family. And so I could use all of that in those scenes with her. And it let me have somewhere to go because the story of Bess and Evelyn's relationship is a very sad one in, in, in this, from my perspective. You know, Evelyn gets lost in a way um, in this world that she comes into through her fiancé um, and then husband, uh, Rabbi Bengelsdorf, who is a kind of like shill for the Lindbergh, anti-Semitic Lindbergh administration. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's uh, what I appreciated about the two of you together is and, and also, you know, we see this dynamic between Sandy and Philip. Too. Like, I just think it's rare to get really credible sibling relationships on screen. You know, I think a lot of time it's like archetypes kind of butting heads. But this is like you buy them fully as sisters. I'm so glad yeah. I, I I felt. I felt good about what we made. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do think that the boys really seem like brothers, too. Yeah. yeah, it's it's cool to see. Yeah. So, yeah, everyone should watch this show. I feel like it feels very urgent. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think aside from even the relevancy to today, it's just it's just good television. So I advocate for that. Um, before I let you go, I know you're very busy. What's kind of on your horizon? Are you are you like now that you're a new parent? Are you seeking out a lot of work or is it just kind of like? I mean, I know you're working on something now in a far-flung place. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about that. Um, I think we are. Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing one season of a new Netflix series that I'm shooting in Australia right now. My partner, Paul Dano, is shooting this Batman movie in London at the same time. Oh, wow. So that has been complicated. A lot of Qantas flights? <laughs> yes, a lot of Qantas flights. Yeah. A lot of really, really long Qantas yeah. flights. Um, so that's a little complicated. It's the first time both of us have worked since our daughter was born. I mean, both of us at the same time. And I don't really want to do that again if I can avoid it for some time. Again, you can't control these things. Um, we didn't think that this was going to happen, and then it did. When Netflix and Batman call, you have to, you have to I answer. guess. Yeah. I guess they put the like N symbol up into the clouds, <laughs> and you go, um, you know, I don't know. I. I want to write for the rest of the year. I, I I find so much solace in it, and like I just need to take care of my brain. I I mean I started filming on Plot Against America this time last year. We shot until late September. I began work on this Netflix project in early November, so I will have been working you know 13 months essentially without a break um, for that period of time. So I really I really want to like let my writing take the front seat for a little while. And also, like, potentially use part of my year to help us get a Democratic candidate yeah, elected. that would be nice. Yeah, that, that be who good. knows? Yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> the last time yeah. we had our election, Paul and I were in pre-production and production on wildlife. So I did a lot of, like, phone banking, but that oh. was the best I could do. So I'm sort of hoping maybe this year I can, yeah. unless Corona keeps us all inside of our homes, in which case I'll be doing a lot of phone <laughs> banking again. Yeah, yeah. Um, one last question. You're taking a lot of flights. Are you a read on the plane, watch on the plane? And if you are going to watch something, where do you tend to go, like genre-wise? Or... Mm. Well, um, <laughs> let me tell you, um, flying without a baby now seems like an incredible luxury to right. me. So 
on this last flight, I read a couple books because like reading time seems incredibly precious to me now. I've been like I used to sit on set and like, you know, try to keep my mind kind of blank between scenes, talking with co-stars or doing the crossword puzzle on my phone or whatever, or looking at Twitter. Mm -hmm. Now I'm like, I have my novel like tucked just off screen and like I'm reading um, Nell Freudenberger's Lost and Wanted right now, which is wonderful. I read Train Dreams on the plane coming here, which was just incredible. Um, and my best friend, Anna heedner Sessian, who's an academic, had given me her, her new manuscript to read. So I read that on the plane. Um, and then I wrote I um, wrote a bit, and then I watched Jojo Rabbit, which I had watched, but um, in like an incredibly sleepless state, jet-lagged coming back from Australia over Christmas break. Mm-hmm. So I watched it again in a more like cogent mind frame. And then Paul's like a big Marvel watcher on the planes. Like sure. he like catches up on all of the things that we don't see on the big screen necessarily. I try to catch up on the stuff that I feel like like other people talk about and I don't get to see. We don't get to go to the movies a lot. Yeah. We went to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire recently, which was movie. like fucking awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think like, I, I think the, so there's some statistic like the average American person watches three movies a year in the theaters. Oh, it's crazy low. Yeah. 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 So we're at that average right. right now. <laughs> right. Like that's us. Um, yeah. I think we saw that in Little Women and like, Parasite, and maybe that's it for like the last Knives Out four. Okay, hey, look, one you're, better you're than the, the average. average. You're above average. Um, yeah. yeah, good. Uh, well, thank you for taking the time uh, before another long flight to talk to us. Congrats on the show; it's excellent, and um, hope to have you back for some other exciting project in so about much. three years. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Yeah, okay. yeah, sounds Thanks. great. Thanks. All right, thank you, Richard. That does it for this week's show. Um, I'm hoping we can be back next week maybe talking about something else, but it is, it's truly hard to know. So uh, we're going to continue to make the show. We like doing it. There's obviously a lot to talk about. Uh, maybe by next week I'll have watched something uh, that's actually worth talking about. That would be a real accomplishment on my part. But in the meantime, everybody, um, stay indoors, stay safe, wash your hands, um, take care of each other. And, um, we'll, you know, there will still be an Emmys and an Oscars this year as far as we know, and they will be extremely strange as a result of this. So um, there's going to be a lot of interesting things to talk about. Uh, in the middle of all the serious stuff. So in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com where there's a lot of coverage of um, really great news reporting about uh, the government response to the coronavirus and a lot of uh, lists of things you can watch while you're stuck at home. Um, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen where we love hearing from you as always. And we're on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. And Joanna? She wrote this. And Richard? Rylaws. And Mike is at Mike underscore Hogan. Uh, This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best silver lining goes to Joanna Robinson. It's Quibi's time to shine. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Thank you.